chapter 37 tonight, Exodus chapter 37, we've been talking about the tabernacle. Uh, we, last time we talked about, uh, well, time before last, we talked about Beziel and how he was first mentioned of him in, in, ex, in Exodus of him and him being uh, filled with the Spirit, being led by the Spirit. And we talked about then the next time, what is, who is the Holy Spirit? We did a whole message on the Holy Spirit, uh, the gifts of the Holy Spirit, the person of the Holy Spirit. Because I think that is needful because we don't often talk about the, the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Tonight we're back in Exodus chapter, uh, actually chapter uh, 37, and uh, 37 verses 1 through 29. And we're talking about God's house, God's house. I love God's house. I hope you love God's house. I hope, I hope one of the most important things you think about through the week is, is being in God's house. And naturally here on a Sunday night, so I don't have to preach to the choir, almost literally the choir. And some, of, and some more, but uh, thank you for being faithful to God's house. And I believe that when we stand before God at the judgment seat of Christ, I think it's going to be important as we meet with him, if we give an account of our lives, how we lived and how we are faithful to God's house. Uh, and I talked about that a little bit this morning, about how some folks, you know, will come to a, a football game in the rain, but they'll make excuses not to be in God's house. And I think, unfortunately, that's true that a lot, a lot of times that folks are not as faithful as they should be to God's house. But I love God's house. And I'm, I'm not saying that just because I'm a, a, the pastor here. I love God's house when I got saved. I loved, I look forward to come, going to church. I look forward to uh, meeting people and fellowshipping with people and talking to people and encouraging people. I look forward to, I look forward to Sunday school. And uh, if you're not going to Sunday school, you ought to come. You ought to be a part. You ought to be a part. Brother Pete's doing an excellent job in Sunday school going through James uh, this morning. Miss Dorothy has a Bible study. She's going through the teens, of course, the younger ones. Uh, you, ought to be in, you ought to be in Sunday school. That's how we grow. How, how do you grow? By learning the Word of God. By, you, you know that you learn the Word of God by knowing the Word of God. And how do you learn it? By, well, of course, yourself, which is important, but by hearing other people talk about it and teach it. And I hope throughout the week you listen to good messages, good preaching. You go to your dial, 90.5, you'll hear a lot of good teaching and preaching. One of my favorite preachers of all time, Adrian Rogers, is on there. I think about 10 o'clock, I believe it is. Right when I get out of having breakfast, I usually hit 90.5, and he's on there preaching. You listen to him on a regular basis, promise you, I promise you, you're going to be blessed. There's some other great uh, men of God. Elizabeth Elliot, Lady of God. She's on there like 11 o'clock. Sometimes I'm going to Sunny's. I listen to her. She has some, some wisdom, some godly wisdom. So, there's so some great preaching and some great teaching, and, and that's a good source to go. So I hope you're listening to good, good preaching, good teaching, good music, and especially starting this coming Friday as they'll have a whole month of Christian Christmas music on 90.5 whole lot better than a lot of stuff that people listen to today. But I love God's house. But what about God's house in the Old Testament? We've been talking about God's house, and we're talking about the tabernacle and the importance of the tabernacle, and we see it in Exodus chapter 30, 37 and verses 1 through 29. So we know the amazing thing about the tabernacle is that every part of the building of the tabernacle, it was, it was designed for a purpose. And as I talked about to you before and mentioned that when I was over in Israel, I got to see a replication of a tabernacle. And this is part of what I got to see, if I can get it to work. Is it on there, brother? 
There we go. The tabernacle of the Old Testament. Right there. That's where we actually went. And, of course, they had other, the laver, uh, other things out in the courtyard. But this was a, a direct uh, replica of the tabernacle with the colors, with the dimensions, with the designs of the tabernacle. And we talked about the outward work. But tonight, we're going to talk about what is inside the tabernacle. Starting, first of all, with the Ark of the Covenant. With the Ark of the Covenant. There were four pieces of sacred furniture in God's house. The first of them being the Ark of the Covenant. And as I went inside the Holy of Holies, there's the Ark of the Covenant. And again, it's not the Ark of the Covenant, because I touched it probably and I'll probably be dead. <laughs> but it's just a, a replica of what it probably looked like. So four pieces of, of sacred furniture in God's house, the Ark of the Covenant, the table of showbread, the lampstand of life, and the altar of incense. The earth, of course, this first item is mentioned here in Exodus chapter 37 is the Ark of the Covenant. Presumably Israel's craftsmen worked on several pieces of furniture at the same time, but the Bible starts with the Ark, and we see it here in Exodus chapter 37, verse 1. And Bezio made the Ark of Shittim wood, two cubits and a half the length of it, the cubit and a half the breadth of it, the cubit and a half the height of it. He overlaid it with pure gold within and without and made a crown of gold to round about it. He cast it for four rings of gold to be set by four corners of it, even two rings upon the one side and two rings upon the other side. He made staves of shittim wood and overlaid them with gold. He put the staves into uh, rings by the sides of, of the ark to bear the ark. So the ark was a portable wooden box covered with gold and measuring roughly four feet long by two feet wide and two feet high. Three sacred things went inside of it. The first of it, and we see again inside here, was manna, the miracle bread that God provided for the Israelites during the 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. Exodus chapter 16, verse 32. And Moses said, This thing which the Lord commanded, fill an omer of it to keep for your generations, that you may see the bread wherewith I have fed you in the wilderness when I brought you forth out from the land of Egypt. So Aaron, Joseph, uh, brother of, of Moses, and the high priest of Israel, put a golden jar, a man in the ark, as a permanent sign of God's prevent, providential care. The bread, supernaturally preserved, reminded the Israelites that God would satisfy all their needs. So who is God, and what, we, what do we learn from the, the manna? That according to the manna in the ark, God is a faithful provider. He giveth us our daily bread. Now, I'll tell you what, I've been saved for almost 35 years. It'll be this April. I've never lacked food. Have you? I've been hungry now sometimes. And I've gone on a fast deliberately. But 35 years, by the grace of God, I believe God takes care of his children, don't you? I believe God provides for his children. He has, and he does. Now, sometimes we squander that. Sometimes we misuse the finances that God has used, gives us. And sometimes we don't prepare like we should, as we see in the days of Joseph. He prepared for the famine. Other times, God's people prepared in a time of, of difficulty. But God prepares and takes care of his people. God is faithful. He's a faithful provider, and I'm so thankful for that. The second item it was the Ark of Aaron's staff. In time of rebellion, when the Israelites challenged the spiritual authority... God told Moses to gather 12 staffs. These staffs came from the leaders of the 12 tribes of Israel and thus symbolized the tribal authority. God miraculously caused Aaron to, 
to sprout with buds, Aaron's staff to sprout with buds and blossoms, according to Numbers chapter 17, verse 8. He confirmed his spiritual leadership, proving that he was Israel's rightful priest. Afterward, Aaron's staff was kept with the ark as a permanent reminder of God's authority in Israel. So first of all, we learn from the from uh, the manna that God is faithful, but because of the staff which is inside the Ark of the Covenant, we learn that he is the ruler of his people. It goes along with what I talked about this morning. In the book of Acts, the name of Jesus is mentioned a few times, but the fact that he is the Lord is mentioned many more times. And the fact that he, we, we're, we're saved by, by Jesus Christ, who is our, our Lord, our, our, our provider, but we, are, we, we should be following him because the word Lord actually means master. We emphasize, and we still should on a regular basis, realize the Lord is not just the one who saves me and redeems me, and praise God he does, but he's the, the master of our life. And everything we do and say, whether we eat, whether we drink, whatsoever we do, we should all to the glory of God, we should allow the Lord to lead us and guide us in our lives. And so that rod, Aaron's rod that budded was, a, was symbolic of the, of the Lord being the leader of their life. Third item was in the ark. It basically gave it its name. God's covenant with Israel was written in stone. God told Moses to put a copy of the covenant inside the ark, according to Exodus chapter 25, verse 16. This covenant, or testimony as the Bible calls it, sets the terms for God's relationship with Israel. In the covenant, God promised to give his people every blessing of salvation, but he also demanded their obedience to his commandments. And we have that, of course, in the New Testament. What did Jesus say to his disciples? If you love me, keep my commandments. How do you know you love Jesus? Do you follow his word? As simple as that. If you don't love his word, if you don't love him, you won't follow him. If you do love him, you will. Simple as that. We, he's demanded obedience to his commandments. He would be their God and they would be his people. Thus the covenant was a permanent reminder of God's promise to his people and the law for their lives. So who is God? And what is this What is this? A testimony uh, reveal about God according to the covenant side of the ark he is the both both Savior and the Lord the ark of the covenant testified that God is our provider our ruler our Savior and our Lord he is the one who gives us daily bread he's the one who governs by authority he's appointed over one he is the one who gives us the blessing of salvation and tells us how to live but the most important thing about the ark was what went on top of it. Once Beziel had finished making the box itself, look at verse 7. Exodus chapter 37, verse 7. He made two cherubims of gold, beaten out of one piece, made he them on the two ends of the mercy seat. One cherub on the, on the end on the side, another cherub on the end on that side. Out of the mercy seat made he cherubims on the two ends thereof. And the cherubims spread out their wings on high and covered with their wings over the mercy seat with their faces one to another, even to the mercy seat towards where the faces of the cherubims. Cherubims, of course, are mighty angels who surround God's glorious throne. They're his guardian angels, the ones who guard the way to his presence. The psalmist addressed this in Psalm chapter 80 and verse 1, that they are around the th his, his throne. According to Samuel, the Ark of the Covenant was called by the name the Lord Almighty, who was thrown by the cherubims of the ark. The cherubim thus showed the ark was a representation of God's throne. When God descended on the tabernacle, he appeared in a cloud of glory over the ark of the covenant, which was the place of his presence and power. 
So who is God? According to the angels on the ark, he is the ruler of heaven and earth who sits enthroned between the cherubim. And I'm so thankful that we can know that he's in control. This world changes, has changed, and will continue to change. But God's in control. He's sovereign over the, over the, over the troubles and, and problems of the world. Though all things change, he never changes. He is sovereign. He is Lord. This helps explain why the ark was used to lead the Israelites into battle. Remember, as they went into the battle, Joshua began the conquest of Canaan. In Joshua chapter 1, the ark led the way as they went over the Jordan River. The ark went first and parted the waters, according to Joshua chapter 3. It was also in the middle of the parade that marched around Jericho those many times to go around the wall. According to Joshua chapter 6, the, the ark showed the, the, that the God of mighty angels was present in power, leading his people into battle. The king of kings with his royal armies. This all explains why, he's, it, why it was fatal for the people to touch the ark. As we remember in 2 Samuel chapter 6, verses 1 through 7, to use it in any inappropriate way. In 1 Samuel chapter 4 and 5, God was present in all the purity and power in his holiness. The people, of course, were not holy. They were sinners who had broken God's law for their lives. So there was one thing that, that went on the ark, the blood from a sacrifice for sin. Once a year, the day called the Day of Atonement, the high priest offered a sacrifice for the sins of people. We find that in Leviticus chapter 16. First, he would slaughter a goat as a, as a sin offering. The goat, of course, was a substitute. The people were the ones who observed who deserved to die for their sins, but the animal died in their place. The high priest would take the sacrificial blood, enter the Holy of Holies, sprinkle it on the lid of the ark, and in this way he would make atonement for Israel's sin. Hence the name that was given to the ark lid, the atonement cover. It was called the mercy seat because it was the place where God showed mercy to sinners. The blood was an expiation. It removed the guilt of Israel's sin. It was also called a propitiation. It turned aside God's wrath. When God saw the blood-stained ark, he knew that the demands of his justice had been met. A sacrifice had been made for the people's sin. So who is God? As we see this mercy seat, according to the atonement cover, he's the God of mercy and justice who forgives sinners on the basis of the blood sacrifice. As we read in Hebrews, it wasn't the, the blood of any animal. It wasn't the blood of goats or bulls. It was the blood, the precious blood of Jesus Christ who was, who was slain before the foundation of the world. That's why we sing these wonderful songs about the blood. Oh, precious is the flow. Amen. We sing these wonderful songs about the blood because it's because of the shed blood of Jesus Christ. I believe if he just swooned, I believed if he had just died, that would not suffice or would not satisfy the wrath of God. He had to shed his blood so that we could be saved. Saved through the blood of the crucified one. That's how we're saved. It was all part of the rich symbolism of the ark. God provides what we need, giving us our daily bread. He governs our lives, directing us by a spiritual authority. He reigns supreme, ruling from his royal throne. He, gives, he offers forgiveness, accepting the blood as a substitute, as atonement for our sins. Of course, all of this is symbolic and pointing to Jesus Christ. 
Secondly, not only the Ark of the Covenant and the elements therein, secondly, we see the table, the lampstand, and the altar of incense. Here we start with the table of showbread. Look at chapter 37, verse 10. And he made a table of shittim wood, two cubits by the length thereof, a cubit the breadth thereof, a cubit and a half the height thereof. And he overlaid it with pure gold. He made therein a crown of gold around about it. He made therein a border of a handbreadth round about it. He made a gold, crown of gold for the border thereof round about. And he cast it four rings of gold. And there he put the rings of corners around about four feet. And over against the border were the rings and the places for the staves to bear the table. And he made the staves of shittim wood and overlaid them with gold to bear the table. And he made the vessels which are upon the table, his dishes, his spoons, bowls, and his covers to cover with all of pure gold. Like everything else inside the tabernacle, this table with the dishes that were part of it, or on top of it, were made of gold. Each week, the priests would bake 12 loaves of bread. Why 12 loaves? 12 tribes, right. And 12 disciples, right, coming in the future. Presumably representing the 12 tribes of Israel. On the Sabbath day, which is on Saturday. Saturday, it's not Sunday in the Old Testament. Saturday is, the Sabbath day was on Sunday. Actually, the Sabbath runs from dawn on Friday night till dusk on Saturday night, the Sabbath. They would set fresh bread on the table in the presence of God. Then towards the end of the week, they would eat it. What did this bread teach the Israelites? It taught them that God was their provider. He took care of them. He was the one who gave them grain, provided bread for his priests. On one occasion, God even used the bread, the presence to feed King David and his army. Remember that? As he was fleeing from Saul, he went inside and got some, got some bread and fed himself in the in, in his loved ones. And ultimately, Saul saw that and executed, of course, all the, the priests. But since it was a, a, even one more occasion, God used the bread to, in, to give to David. But since it was an offering to God, the bread on the table taught the Israelites to offer themselves for God's service. Just as the 12 loaves were presented to God, so the 12 tribes of Israel were present, were to pre- present themselves before God as his servants. But the bread also reminded the Israelites that they were bound to God by a covenant. Leviticus refers to this as the lasting covenant in Leviticus chapter 24 and verse 8, meaning a binding agreement that secures a relationship. In those days, when people made a covenant, they usually shared a meal that sealed their fellowship. Sharing a, this, this, we see this in uh, Exodus chapter 24. When God confirmed his covenant with Israel, the elders went up to the mountain, and there they saw God, and they, they fellowshiped around the food. They were sharing a meal in God's presence, and this sealed their friendship with them. Similarly, the bread and the tabernacle showed that God communed with his people, relating to them in an intimate way. So what do we learn about God from this, uh, from this uh, show, table of showbread? Of course, he is our provider, but not only our provider, our friend who takes care of us on a regular basis, someone who sits down with us at the table. And isn't that interesting? The last time you see Jesus Christ with his 12 disciples, what is he doing? He's at a table, right? And every fifth Sunday, what do we do? We have communion. And we remember what Jesus Christ did with his disciples is they broke the bread, which represented his body, and they drank of the, from the cup, which represented his blood. And that's why we do that. And remember, it's all these things fit together, but it gets symbolic of what was in the past. The table of the showbread was illuminated by the lampstand of life. There it is, the lampstand. 
We see it in Exodus chapter 37, verse 17. He made a candlestick of pure gold and beaten work, which he, made, which he made the candlestick. His shaft and his branch, his bowls, his knops, and his flowers were the same. Six branches going out of the side thereof. Three branches of the candlestick out of the one side thereof. Three branches of the candlestick out of the other side thereof. Three bowls made after the fashion of almonds in one branch, a knop and a flower. Three bowls made like almonds in another branch, a knop and a flower. So throughout the six branches going out of the candlestick, and the candlesticks were four bowls made like almonds with knops and flowers. Verse 21, a knop under the two branches of the same, a knop under the two branches of the same, a knop under the two branches of the same, according to the six branches going out. And the knops and the branches were the same. All of it, all of it was one beaten work of pure gold. What craftsmanship? What craftsmanship? And he made his seven lamps and his snuffers and this and the snuff dishes of pure gold, of talent of pure gold, made it all the vessels thereof. So what was the purpose of this lampstand? Well, it was to light the tabernacle because it was shrouded with so many curtains. And if you go inside this replica of the tabernacle, you, as soon as you go in, these thick curtains, you recognize without that light, it would be totally dark. The tabernacle was pitch black, but the lampstand was shining in the darkness. It did this night after night as the priest continually replenished its oil. The lampstand was a perpetual flame. Some people think that the lights of the lampstand represented heavenly bodies like the sun, the moon, the visible planets. Where this interpretation is correct, I don't think, I'm not quite sure about that. But the lampstand was a symbol of his pure and perfect light. God makes things clear, doesn't he? He gives us light. He gives us illumination. He teaches us from the, the truth. And we talked about last week how the Holy Spirit guides us into all truth. We talked about this morning how we as a Christians, how we should love the Lord our God so much in everywhere in, in, in our life that our life should shine as lights. And we should go out to this community in our workplaces, in our homes, in our houses, and be the lights that we should be for and shine bright for Christ. You know, sometimes if you, you work with those Christmas lights, one little light, one little light can destroy the whole strand, can it? You ever seen that? You ever try to go down the way and figure out which the old lights and figure which light it is? It, it's an interesting illustration. Think about it. One little light in a congregation of many people can hurt the whole group, can't they? It's one little light's out. <laughs> and so it is in our life. That's why we all must purpose in our heart and band together as believers in Christ to be the bright lights that we should be for Christ. And we see one when we see the, the lights get low, Brother Eric. We need to encourage them to be bright again, to be strengthened again, to, 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 bright, to, to be as bright as possible. Because each person, as we're knit together, as we looked in Colossians, each one of us affect an, the other person, don't we? It's not just one light. We're all connected together as the bride of Christ. And how important each light is. So God makes things clear, teaching us to live in the light of his word. He brings light. He brings hope. Notice the lampstand was covered with buds and blossoms. It looks like a tree of life. And this too imparting of its meaning, God is the life giver as well as the light giver. He is God, both light and life. Just as he once planted the tree of life in the Garden of Eden, so he planted the lampstand, the tabernacle, as a symbol of life-giving power. So we learn about God through the lampstand. According to the golden lampstand, he is the Lord and the giver of life. All life and life come through him. The last piece of furniture we see in the tabernacle is the altar of incense. The altar of incense. Look at verse 25. 
and he made the incense of altar shittim wood, and length of it was a cubit, the breadth of it was a cubit, was four squared, of two cubits was the height of it, the horns were of the same, and he overlaid it with pure gold, both of the top of it, the size thereof round about, the horns of it. Also he made it unto it a crown of gold round about. He made of two rings of gold for it under the crown thereof by the two corners of it upon the two sides thereof to be places for the staves to bear it withal. He made the staves of shittim wood and overlaid them with gold. He made, of, made the holy anointing oil, the pure incense of sweet spices according to the work of the apothecary. The altar, of course, was for the burning of sacred incense which was made according to the special formula was then offered to God both morning and evening. The altar stood directly in front of the Ark of the Covenant, separated only by the veil that curtained off the Holy of Holies. Since the Ark was just on the other side of the curtain, the altar of incense was called the altar that is before the Lord, according to Leviticus chapter 16, verse 18. When a priest stood at the altar, he was in standing in front of the Ark and thus in the very presence of God. The priest, of course, offered Incense on the altar, filled the tabernacle with a pleasing fragrance. The smoking incense represented the prayers of God's people rising to heaven. As King David wrote in Psalm 141, verse 1, O Lord, I cry unto thee, and make haste to give unto me. Give ear unto my voice when I cry unto thee. Let my prayer be set before thee as an incense, and the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. As we learn from the New Testament, of the prayers of the saints that are lifted up towards him. According to Revelation chapter 8 and verse 3, though the altar of incense was Israel's sweet prayer altar, the priests praised God for his holiness, thanked God for his mercy, presented Israel's petitions before the throne of God, who is God according to the altar of incense. He is a God who hears and answers prayer. Aren't you glad that any time of the night, any time of the day, you can offer up your prayer towards God? I'm so glad as a preacher that you don't have to come through me. I have trouble sometimes sleeping at night as it is. Imagine if you had to go through the preacher to get your prayers. I tell you what, talk about being on call, Travis. <laughs> talk about being on call. Yeah, one o'clock in the morning, preacher, would you pray for me? My uh, ingrown toenail hurts. God bless your pea-picking heart. I go back to bed. I'll pray for you first. <laughs> That'd be pretty difficult, Brother Pete. Thankfully, we don't have to go through a preacher. Thankfully, we don't have to go through a priest. Thankfully, we don't have to go through some pope. No, we, go, we have access to the very throne of God through the blood of Jesus Christ. You can boldly go, oh, boldly, on your own, no way possible. Because of what Christ has done, his finished work on the cross, we can goly, boldly go before the throne of grace and, and bring our petitions and bring our praise and our gratefulness and our thankfulness to God. And so it's a wonderful thing. If you have trouble sleeping at night, I can tell you how to cure, how to cure insomnia. Get you a prayer list. Remember we talked about it a couple weeks ago? the importance of prayer, and if you don't have a prayer list, you're really not praying, get you a prayer list and start putting about 25, 30 things. As you go down that list, you'll probably fall out of sleep, about number four, number five. Get you a list of prayer things and praises. Put one side of the list, praises. Put one side, prayer requests. Why not? Why not? God, the God of the Israelites encountered when they entered God's house, the tabernacle was 
was furnished so to show them that God was everything they needed. He was a God of heaven who lived with his people on earth. He was a God of truth who gave them his law. He was a God of guidance who ruled them from his royal throne. He was a God of mercy who offered him forgiveness on the basis of blood. He was a God of providence who, uh, of providence who, uh, who sent bread from heaven. He was a God of covenant who sat down at the table of fellowship. He was a God of, of life and, and light who brightened their way. He was a God of intercession who listened to them when they prayed. He was a God who made his home with Israel at his tabernacle. What does this all have to do, of course, when it comes to Jesus Christ? The question is, where is God's house today? How can we, how can we be home with him? How can we have a relationship with him? Well, God, of course, is everything we need. We're but where, God, where can we find his presence, his guidance, his forgiveness, his provision, his revelation, everything else that comes from living with him? The answer, as we've seen throughout our studies in the last several chapters of Exodus, is that Jesus Christ is the tabernacle of God. God has come to live with us in the person of his son. In the days of Moses, God made his dwelling in the tabernacle, but he was in preparation for the coming of Christ. The tabernacle held the promise of salvation. God used it to show the Israelites and us what kind of Savior would come. This was true of the tabernacle as a whole. The whole building was connected to Christ. It demonstrated that God desired to dwell with his people. That's why we focus on this time of year. Emmanuel, God with us. He's not a, he's not a God far apart. He's not, like, he's not like Zeus who comes down once in a while in his wickedness to relate with man. He's not like other gods who have to be, uh, have burnt offerings sacrificed to them over and over only to appease them, to do work for them when there's no grace. No, he's a God who's personable, who came to dwell amongst, among us. He is Emmanuel. Dr. A man by the name of Dr. Trent was written in the Old Testament dispensation. Two things were valid with regard to Christ. He, has, he was there already, and he still had to come. First of all, we see Jesus is our Ark of the Covenant. He first offered himself as our sacrifice, dying on the cross to make atonement for our sins. We read in 1 John chapter 2 and verse 2, He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for our only, but for also the sins of the whole world. Anybody tells you there's, only, there's an elect group of people that, that only elect group of people can be saved, you take them to 1 John chapter 2 and verse 2 and other places, like John 3, 16, and it says for the propitiation of our sins, but not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. Who did Jesus Christ die for? The sins of the whole world. That's not an individual 5 or 10 or 15, not just for the United States of America. He died for the sins of all mankind. You say, well, preacher, not all mankind will be saved. Well, certainly not. But you and do you know who will be saved and who will not be saved? That's where we're supposed to bring the gospel to every creature, to every person. We shall proclaim the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. He is the Ark of the Covenant. Jesus is our sh table of showbread. John chapter 6, verse 35, And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger, and the he that believeth me shall never thirst. Say, preacher, I'm longing for that which, I, which cannot satisfy. You know you'll only find that in Jesus. You'll not find it in the things of this world. Do all the traveling you can travel. It's good to travel. But dear friend, where can you go? Where can you go that you won't 
out, that you'll outrun Jesus in your need for him? What can you buy? What, can you, what, can you, what kind of gift can you get under the tree that will give you what Jesus Christ can give you? Oh, you'll get something, and before long, it'll break. It'll need batteries, and before long, you'll put it down at Goodwill. My wife will pick it up for half the price. God bless you. God bless you. We buy so much stuff, most of us don't even remember what we got last year for Christmas. Most of us got more than we even can imagine, more than we need. But Jesus Christ provides so much more. He gives us eternal life. The Bible says in Revelation chapter 3 and verse 20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come to him and sup with him and he with me. The greatest blessing in this life is only found through fellowship with Jesus Christ. Nothing greater than that. Nothing more than that. Nothing higher than that. Nothing great, grander than that. No gift more than that. The greatest blessing in this life is to have fellowship with Jesus Christ. That is the greatest on this earth. But it will be even greater when we meet him. Not in these rags which are filled with sin, but in the presence of a holy God in the rapture or through death. Jesus is the light of creation, the one who first brought life and light to the world. He's the light of salvation, showing us the way of eternal life. In John chapter 8 and verse 12, Then Jesus spake unto us again, saying, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not work in darkness, but he shall have the light of life. Thirdly, Jesus is the altar of incense. He prays for us as he prayed for his disciples in the gospel, and his prayers was like the incense before God. Even now, Jesus Christ is in the right hand of the Father, making intercession for us. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25, Wherefore he is able to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. I'm glad he didn't say he's able to save just a few. He's, he's able to save them to the uttermost that come to God by him. Dear friend, Jesus Christ is everything we need. He's everything you need. Be content in him because in him is everything. The greatest joy of Christmas is knowing Christ and having a relationship with him. And that's why we need to do more than anything this day. More than looking on Amazon for that perfect gift. More than shopping down the aisles for that perfect present. It's telling people about Jesus Christ. What we have in this life is temporal. But what we can offer other people is eternal. The greatest gift this Christmas is Christ himself.